Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today I have on the program from San Antonio, Texas, Hervé Florent. Hervé, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hervé, I'm so happy that you decided to join uh, join me today. Um, you've made a difference literally all over the world. You've, you've been to Egypt and to Kenya and all over Africa, of course, and Ivory Coast, and now you're in Texas working as, as an evangelist in that great church, and I know that you're still uh, deeply involved in the work in Africa. Uh, we have a connection that goes way back uh, through my wife, Pam, and uh, can you tell me how you became a Christian? Yes, yeah, absolutely. It'd be a pleasure. Uh, you know, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Pam is the one who invited me to church. Um, when I got back from, from Europe, um, uh, my first few classes uh, were back at UMass Boston. And Pam was in two of my first four classes. And um, one of the classes was an African-American studies class. And she was the only white person in the class. And so, um, <laughs> but I grew up in Europe. And so I had a little bit of a different way of looking at things. And so we would have debates in class. And, um, and as far as I was concerned, Pam was the only one who made any sense. So uh, it was usually she and I against the rest of the class, and we got <laughs> to be good friends that way, um, and we had great discussions. Um, and then well, one day, uh, uh, I was walking through campus, and I had lost my wallet, and I ran into Pam. And we started talking, and she was inviting me to church. I didn't really want to go uh, because I played basketball religiously on Sunday <laughs> for about six hours um, with a bunch of my buddies. And so... Um, but even at that time, if I said I was going to do something, I usually did it. So I was trying not to say yes. Uh, but Pam was persistent, and she kept. We kept on talking for two and a half hours. Wow! Finally, I said, "Okay, I'll be there." <laughs> and I went, uh, and I was there on Sunday, and um, it was amazing. It was it was exactly what I had always been looking for. What I thought church should always be, um, and I began studying the Bible the very next day. Uh, and I was baptized into Christ three weeks later, uh, and that was October 16th, 1986, and I've been here ever since. Wow, what a great, great, great story. I know, I know Pam's shared that. We've uh, known each other for a long time. Really inspirational story, source of huge encouragement for my wife. And um, you're, Now, your family is from Haiti, isn't it? That is correct, yes. Okay, mm -hmm. and your dad was involved in music, can you tell me a little bit about that? You've got one of the most fascinating upbringings and uh, early lives that I've I've run into. What was it like growing up? Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yes. Well, growing up, uh, okay, so my parents uh, immigrated from Haiti um, in the early 60s, and I was born in Boston in 1965. Okay. They were, um, they both grew up in the church in Haiti. Uh, my dad was the organ, at the age of 16, he was the organist for the Episcopal Cathedral in, in, um, in Haiti. And so uh, they sent him to the States and he went to the New England Conservatory of Music and he eventually ended up getting a PhD in music and he taught university for over 40 years around Boston and at, at uh, Tufts University, Wellesley College, uh, a few other places. And so, um, but growing up with, with my, my parents, actually my parents divorced when I was two years old. And I was raised mostly with my mom, although I, you know, my dad was very present in my life. Um, but um, music was a big part of, of life growing up. Um, he played in several uh, bands. Uh, he, he played at different churches. Um, and so I just grew up with music all around. Hmm. Now, are, are, do you play an instrument? Are you musically oriented now? I no longer play. I used to, and as a kid, I did. Um, but uh, through our travels throughout Europe, it was very difficult to travel with an instrument mm -hmm. um, back in those days. Uh, so, um, so I don't play any instruments any longer. Okay. Now, Erve, you are truly a man of the world. Long before you went on missions all over all over the world, you traveled all over the world. You studied all over the world. Uh, I know that you, you studied in France and Spain. So tell me a little bit about your college life uh, before you became a Christian and then your experience sure. overseas. Okay, so my mom, uh, later on, later in life, she decided she wanted to go to medical school. And so uh, at the age of 11, when I was 11, uh, she 
moved my sister and I uh, to France, to so Bordeaux, France, and went to started medical school. Um, and so there I was, a 11-year-old American kid, um, thrown into a French uh, Catholic school, and I uh, had to learn to speak French, um, <laughs> which, which I did. Um, and so she did her first two years in France, then transferred to Southern Spain, uh, and where she finished. And so I grew up in France and Spain. I speak both languages, um, and it was it was honestly uh, just a wonderful time. So I began my university studies in Spain. I at see. A okay. At okay. a Spanish university. Okay. Uh, studying linguistics and Spanish philology, and so um, yeah, and so then. When mom graduated, we came back to the States, and that's how I ended up going uh, to UMass to finish. Wow. So from 11 to 18, you were living in France for two years, then in Spain. Is that right? In Spain. So basically, yes. And in there somewhere a couple of years, uh, I spent one year in Haiti when I was 15. And then at 16, I had skipped a grade. At 16, I graduated high school at, at Mansfield High School back in Massachusetts before going back to Spain. So it was just kind of all over the place. Okay. Um, so, but but uh, we got back to the states when I was twenty years old. I see. So you did a couple years of college in Spain. That's right. Okay. So you, your college first couple years were were in Spanish. Then you switched over to an English environment. Correct. Now, was that easy? Was it something you didn't think about at the time? I mean, wasn't that challenging to just bounce around between languages? It was challenging, but I had done it. I had done it since the age of 11. Uh, and so, um, and English was the language we spoke at home. So in, for example, in France, outside the house, everything was in French. Inside the home, it was back in English. So, uh, and then same in Spain. So um, I never lost my English. Um, what, what did change was certainly my worldview. Okay, I wanna to get to that in a second. Now, do you speak Creole? I do. Okay, so that was part of, Part of it, but you didn't speak that at home. You just spoke that when you went back to Haiti. That is correct. We did not speak that at home. <laughs> my my mother uh, wanted at least one language that she could speak at home that we didn't understand. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so as kids, so uh, she didn't teach us, but I did spend one year in Haiti when I was 15 years old, uh, and that's when I learned it. I see. Okay. And it's related to French, isn't that right? Yes. So a, a Creole, any type of Creole is basically um, a, a romance, uh, some kind of a mixture with a romance language and an African language. Okay. Didn't know that. Okay. That's interesting. Yes. Okay. So any, it could be a Spanish, a romance language is a Spanish, uh, Italian, French, um, and Romanian. And so any a mixture of one of those languages with an African language is usually called a Creole. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's, yeah. that's okay. So now let's, let's go back. You said that affected your worldview. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That's sure. interesting. Yes. So, um, one of the things, um, that Europeans love to do is argue. So, <laughs> they just do. And so, and so, it, it, you know, and just talk about life and just, you know, and just, discuss things. And so I grew up that way. Uh, and it really helped because, you know, when you learn a different language, you're not just learning the language, but you're learning the people and you're learning how people think because their thought patterns and how they view life is often wrapped up in the language. Right. And so uh, I didn't learn that till later, uh, but I learned to listen to the French, to listen to the Spanish, uh, and they listened to me and just to, to learn the value of listening to other people and seeing things through their eyes. Uh, and this was all become before I became a Christian. So, um, so it changed my worldview. So, so when I look at things, I don't just see things from uh, perhaps an American or a Haitian or an African-American or an English-speaking point of view. Uh, so that, that's pretty much it. Right. What, a, what an incredible upbringing your, your family gave you in, in that way. God was very good. Now, did you retain some of that argumentativeness? You don't seem like a very combative person, um, but maybe oh, I... Well, well, th there, there's a futility to arguing. So <laughs> <laughs> we are not supposed to do everything without complaining and arguing. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it, I, I've came, come to learn that it is, it, it is a bit of a waste of time. I mean, I can still do it just for the fun of it, right. but it's, it, 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 it no longer brings me the, the thrill that it used to when I was younger. 
Okay. Okay, great. Well, Pam told me you guys went on a mission team to Cairo, Egypt in 1988, I believe. And uh, now why did you go there? Why didn't you go to Europe or something else like that? Why, why Egypt? Well, um, I actually did go to Europe first. Okay. Uh, as soon as uh, I, I finished school, I went straight into the ministry uh, a week later. Uh, and I was, I was supposed to go to Paris. And I did. Uh, and so I went to Paris uh, for two, two and a half months uh, to serve there with the Paris church. Um, because that's why when I became a Christian, I realized that with my upbringing, God wanted me to be a missionary. Um, that that's why I learned all these different languages to be able to help other people know God uh, from around the world. And so I went to Paris, uh, but Bob Tranchel, uh, Bob and Lori Tranchel, who led the mission team to Cairo, uh, Bob uh, had studied the Bible with me. He was my dear, dear friend um, and my discipler, and he was the one leading the mission team. And of course, I wanted to go along with him. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I, I was able to join the team uh, and off we went. Wow. Okay, so you went off in a different direction, different language entirely. Uh, she, my wife told me that you picked up Arabic in record speech. It was a source of discouragement that you and, and Mark Ramajan were just speaking Arabic before you knew it. What, you know, tell me a little bit, what did your, what effect did your musical background and all the other experiences you'd, you'd had growing up have on you? I mean, did that, must have made it somewhat easier. I mean, how, how was the transition to that culture? Right. Uh, it was it was a little bit easier. Uh, the Egyptian culture is fascinating. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Um, as far as Arabic is concerned, when I uh, one of my years in Spain at the university, uh, one of the languages because I was studying linguistics, one of the languages I took was Arabic. <laughs> uh, having no idea why I was doing that I was, when I was eighteen years old. So later on, uh, th that certainly that that meager foundation was was useful, it was helpful. Uh, now, as far as music, um, language is sound, uh, just like music is. And you know, any musician will tell you that music is a language. Um, and so the sounds that are made in, uh, in Arabic uh, are different, uh, but it's just sound. And so as long as you, you know what sound to make when and what it means, <laughs> you learn the language. Yeah, you must have grown up with a lot of music in your household uh, with your dad's background, so. That's that's fascinating. I, I find, you know, having been in Japan for ten years, struggling to learn that language, I just, uh, I'm inspired by anyone who's got such a command of various languages. I know how difficult it really is. Now, I know that you guys went on that mission team, and um, it was Bob and Lori, and then there's some s s like three single women, three single guys, or, that's right. or more, and then. Um, didn't work out romantically between any of you, but how did you and Janet end up meeting your wife, Janet? Okay, so I, I met Janet uh, honestly in Boston, uh, probably a couple of weeks after I was I was baptized. She was introduced to me, um, and and then that and nothing came of that. Um, but while I was in Egypt, um, I was I actually got sick. I had uh, hepatitis A, and I was I was sick in bed and. Uh, Pam had left to Boston to go to a uh, women's day and she came back and she told me that she saw Janet. Uh, so I knew who she was uh, and that Janet said that if I wrote to her that she would write back. Um, <laughs> now to this day, my wife attests that she did never said that. <laughs> um, but that's what, that's what Pam told that's me. That's what Pam told you. That's right. That's what she told me. So I did. So I wrote her and she did write back. <laughs> uh, which led to uh, many phone calls, uh, long distance. Oh boy! Uh, you know, I would blow probably about half my salary, oh. um, uh, which was about eight hundred dollars at the time. Oh my gosh! Uh, and so I pay uh, on, on a phone bill, like four hundred dollars on a on a phone bill, oh. uh, just to talk to her. So I did that for several months before we left uh, Cairo and headed back to Boston. Wow. Okay. So what, I mean, at the time, what were you looking for in a wife? I mean, you've been all over the place, seen all sorts of different people. What, did you have any criteria? Did you have anything you're hoping for? I did. Um, by that point, um, I was something like 23, I believe it was. Uh, and um, I'd realized that God want, wanted to use me in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew that I was going to have to have someone who 
loved God with all, her, all of her heart, uh, who was not afraid of hardship. Wow. Um, that when we went through difficult things, this person wasn't going to run. And uh, Janet had been on the mission team to, to Jamaica. Okay. Uh, and during her time there, Jamaica was hit by a Category 5 hurricane called Hurricane Gilbert, which uh, up until that point uh, had been the strongest on record. Uh, and um, and I heard, she told me the story, and I heard the story of how she held her household together with the sisters as the roof was coming off. Oh, my gosh. And she kept everybody calm. And, you know, the roof eventually did come off. Uh, they, she kept everybody praying and calm. And when the eye came over, some brothers came to their house and got them out um, into a more secure location, you know, to wait out the rest of the hurricane. Right. But when I heard that story, I realized, okay, so this is a very strong, godly, courageous woman. And understand this courage is, it's not, it's not, you know, uh, it, it's, it's when you're most afraid, wow. but you still do what is right. Right. And that's what Janet is. Wow. Well, that's, that's a, that's a great story. I, I could have a, that's a blow away story. That's a, you know, amazing story right there. That's her. <laughs> now, any, her. any advice for those who, who might be in a small church or a small ministry group of people who don't see a lot of eligible prospects? I, I, I know um, you're on a small mission team. You're mm-hmm. there for you know, close to a year in Egypt, didn't look like anyone was around. Um, you know, to, how, how could that help someone who's thinking, man, I just, I don't see anybody around me here. What, what can I do? Right. Well, you know, um, it, it, it can be a challenging uh, position to find your oneself in. Luckily, back in our day, okay, we didn't have the internet. Okay. We didn't have, uh, there were no cell phones. There was none of that. So when, when I said that I wrote to Janet, I actually took pen and paper and stamps, you know, the whole thing. Um, I had to wait, you know, a month and a half for the reply, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so there was no, you know, texting and then if they don't reply in 10 minutes. They, there's none of that. So, so um, what I would do, so, to, so giving advice to anybody today, I would say, please take advantage of, of the times. Because we are in small, we might find ourselves in a small place, but there are so many resources available to us, especially if you're a disciple of Jesus. Um, uh, DT Heart and Soul is amazing. I have so many people, so many friends who, who have found uh, a love and, and uh, a life partner, a spouse on, on DT Heart and Soul. Mm-hmm. Um, we, Janet and I, we are big proponents of youth corps. Hope Youth Corps and Hope Volunteer Corps. Those are wonderful opportunities to serve, but it's amazing how, you know, when you're serving and your heart is being vulnerable, the best of you is really on display. Right. You're not, you're not trying to, you're not trying to impress other people. Right. And yet your service and love for God is impressive. And it's a wonderful way uh, for people on youth course to meet one another uh, and even to fall in love, which has happened many, many times. Right. So, so I would encourage people to go out, just find opportunities to serve and let, and really trust that God will, will, will bless you with the right person at the right time. It's, an, it's interesting how often you can meet somebody when you're not looking for somebody. That's really true. So just seek God, serve, serve people, serve God, and allow God to work to provide. Yes. Uh, it yes. really takes trust, doesn't it? It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of trust just to a believe that he's working behind the scenes. And I know that there's a lot of anxiety and worry on people's minds. And yet uh, it's just one more opportunity to, to develop trust. True. Although that's, well, that sounds kind of uh, simple, but it, it, it's, it's a real thing. Now, after Egypt, you left there. You guys were kicked out of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, where'd you go from there? You, I, I know you en- ended up in Africa, but what, what, what right. happened? Okay, what happened was um, uh, uh, one of our leaders at the time came to Cairo and was talking to us and saying, okay, you know, I was t- there were eight of us. And he was, he was saying, okay, we'd like you to go here and you to go there. I think Pam uh, went to San Francisco. And then when it came to my turn, he said, okay, Hervé, you have a choice. And you can either go to France, back to Paris, where I had been before, or you can go to Africa with Mike Tolliver. And um, I, remember, I remember being a little annoyed because I, I just wanted to go, you know, wherever I was needed, 
you know, I didn't want to have to choose. Right. Uh, and the real reason I didn't want to have to choose is because I was afraid to go to sub-Saharan Africa. I see. Uh, and um, so it took several days to think and pray and fast and got advice from other people. Um, and then when someone finally asked me, okay, so where do you want to go? I said, I think I, think I, I need to go to Africa. Wow. Uh, because I'm afraid to go there, so I should go there. Wow. So I mean, that's how it happened. Terrifying to, to go to Africa, uh, yes. to you know, sub, sub-Saharan Africa. It's the graveyard of missionaries. Um mm-hmm. So many people have died there, and it must, it must have been really scary. I know that we have a disciple named Bob Stia in our church, and Bob yes. um, went to Dear Africa. Dear friend of mine. Yeah, he, he was terrified. He d- didn't want to go, and someone tapped his shoulder, and he ended up going. Shows a lot of courage. Um, before we jump off and, t- and talk about that stage of your life, can you tell me a little bit about the growth of the church in Egypt? Like when you got there, how many people were there, and then when you left— what was the what was the church size and and what was it oh like? goodness uh, well you know when we got there it was just the eight of us as we were you know getting to getting to know each other getting to know the language and all of that um, of course we had uh, Mo um, Mohsen Bishara who spoke who was who is Egyptian and spoke uh, you know obviously the language um, by the time we left I want to say I think we were something in the twenties mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a few baptisms. Uh, it, was, it was exciting times, uh, so, uh, for sure. And I think that they've, they've you know, surpassed that uh, and just gone on to, to uh, greater and greater things. But uh, I think we were in our 20s. Yeah. Challenging mission field. And yet you guys did amazing. And, and I've heard that you reached through families and through family relationships. Yes, mostly. Uh, yeah. Mostly. Uh, there were a few few just cold contact on the street, but it was mostly through relationships. The the, the culture there is so relational, as, as it is all over uh, South, uh, all over Africa, but so relational. And so the way to, uh, I guess, somewhat what you would see in the scriptures, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you meet this person and then they bring their brother and their sister and their brother and their uncle and, you know, and so on and so forth. So. Right, right. Okay. Well, thank you. Now, tell me, You've been all over Africa. Please to kind of give me a broad overview of where you went and, and where you've led and, and some of the different experiences you've had there. Sure. Okay. Uh, first uh, first spot, spot was uh, Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire. We landed there in um, the fall of uh, 1990. Mike and Emergy Tolliver led the team. And um, they had a, a brilliant strategy uh, for, for Africa. What they initially did is about 50 or 60 people left New York, went to Zimbabwe. They left about 20 there. And then the group, whole group moved on to uh, Nairobi, Kenya, left another 30 there. And then a few moved on to Abidjan and the Ivory Coast. And that's how, how it was done. And so we all got to know each other uh, and, and uh, serve each other, uh, but then plant the different churches together. But the challenge in Abidjan was it was French speaking. And so um, that's why I was there. And so we, we started there. Um, we had uh, the first year, I think we had 185 baptisms or something like that wow. the first year. Um, which is really impressive. Uh, it's probably a little too many, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, it was really, it was a great, great time. Um, after Abishan, uh, we went, served in South Africa for about a year to get more training in 93, and then back to Abidjan for the next four years, where the church went from 300 to about 1250 in the wow. next four, four and a half years. Oh, um, and then we planted uh, out of Abidjan, I think we planted 16 churches. Excuse me, I think it was 14 churches. 14 churches we planted out of Abidjan in that time span. Uh, and then um, I got a call. Uh, Mike and I were spending some time. And he said, listen, we'd like you to move over to Nairobi and do in Nairobi what you did in Abidjan. Uh, for Janet and I, uh, the main thing that we really focus on uh, in, in our walk with Christ is our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Um, so we really building family is is really uh, I think integral to 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 what, what we do in the ministry, and so they wanted us to go in that, to Nairobi and do the same thing, and that was a privilege to be able to go over there. Um, and just uh, just so you know, Janet did not speak French when we went to Abidjan; she learned the language there. Oh my gosh! 
uh, and to be able to, to teach. So the first year she was there, she did not, didn't understand a word of what was going on <laughs> at, at church, Bible talk, anything, nothing. <laughs> Um, and so, but, but she was fluent. She's fluent today. Yeah. So she and went so to school during that time to, to she learn did. it. She went and got a degree in French. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. So, so did you go to Zimbabwe and then you went to Kenya and then you went to Abidjan and you go straight to Abidjan and just jump okay. in at the end? I went straight to Abidjan in the end because when we left Cairo, we got back to the States and I was joining the team in New York. And then there was an open door, uh, in Haiti. And so Steve Johnson, the leader in, the, in New York, asked me uh, if I would go to Haiti for a few months to get the church started, to plant the church there before going to Abidjan. Since, you know, um, they didn't need me in Zimbabwe or in Nairobi, uh, I wouldn't be really needed till, till Abidjan. So he, he asked me if I, wouldn't ta- if, if I wouldn't mind taking six months and going to Haiti. And I just started laughing. And he asked me why I was laughing. And I said, well, because when I, when I studied the Bible, um, I, before I became a Christian, I knew what God wanted me to do. And in my heart, there were two places I did not want to go. One was Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. The other was Haiti. <laughs> and so I'd been to Egypt, you know, I was on my way to Sub-Saharan Africa and God, it was as if God said, hold on, there's still one more thing we've got to work out between you and I. And that's why I started, just like you're laughing, is what I did that day. Uh, and for the first time, I told, I'd never told anybody this, um, but that I had been afraid to go to, to Haiti. Wow. Um, and so, but it was such a joy, what a privilege to be able to go. Uh, and fall in love with those people, just wonderful people, um, and to be able to to go to my parents' home country, learn, you know, and 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 start the church there. It was it was an honor. So an absolute honor. Prior to that, there wasn't a, an ICOC church there in no. In and so you went to Port-au-Prince. I went to Port-au-Prince. I went to, first to a little village in the mountains called Saint Raphael, uh, and I was spent three months there. And then the next three months were down in Port-au-Prince. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you uh, founded that church. That's, that's an amazing little detour in your missionary life. It, well, it, it was necessary because, you know, if you're going to serve God, uh, there can't be anything that you won't do. Well, there, there's a nugget and right there. So God, and no one knew this, only God knew. That's amazing. He, so, you have your bucket list. God has his bucket list for you. <laughs> yes, he does. That's yes, he does. And his is always better than yours. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me, it must have been an amazing six months. What you have any special memories from that time? Anything that really stands out? I do. Yeah. You know, the time up in the village uh, in San Rafael was fantastic. Now, understand, up in this village, there's barely any electricity. Um, the baptisms, we did them in the river. Um uh, it was it was just little church that was leaning to the side and everything. It was just just of people coming in from the fields and they come into church. It was it was magical just to be able to just share this, the gospel with these people. They were study the Bible and uh, it was it was the time of my life. Uh, and in the evenings, you would hear uh, voodoo ceremonies going on in the in the hills. You see the fires in the hills of the voodoo ceremonies, and um, I had to work out some things with God during those, those nights as well. But uh, it, it was great. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, why did you go to that small village prior to going to the big city? Because there was a, um, uh, a pastor who became a disciple in the Miami church. Okay. And he told him in Miami, listen, I've got a church back in San Rafael, you know, and I want to go, you know, uh, convert all these people. And so Word got out, and they asked me to go down and work with these people, and so and we did. I see, um, and we did, and so that's great. Wow, that's that's it was wonderful, man. That's amazing. Now, <clears throat> in over definitely over the last fifty years, the the center of gravity of Christianity has certainly shifted. I mean, at one point, obviously, it's Middle East, Western Europe, America. Mm-hmm. And now it's it's shifted to the southern hemisphere. Um, like, what's your view on that? Why? What do you think's contributed to that? What's your What's your view on uh, the the rapid growth of churches in Africa and in in Asia? Mm-hmm. 
Um, that is actually an excellent question. Um, in my opinion, I simply think it's because, and I've asked Janet this, her, her thoughts as well. I think it's because in Africa, there is a more of a, an innate spirituality at, at, at the moment, if you will. Uh, there's a willingness uh, to accept that there's something greater than myself uh, and I need to know who that is. Uh, and that existed, you know, in the Middle East, that existed in Europe for, during a time. It migrated to, to North America and South America. Uh, and, and now it's, 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 it's in Africa. Um, and one other thing I will add to that is simply that um, culture in Africa is very, you can see it in the scriptures. Our Western culture does not translate to the scriptures. Their culture in Africa is not Western. Okay. It's closer to that Middle Eastern culture. So the, the things described, the, the behaviors described by the reactions of the people in the scriptures uh, are very understandable to those cultures. Okay, can you, that's, that's, let's just stop right there. Can you flesh that out? Can you explain some examples? What, what does that mean? Um, explain for us what you mean by that. Um, what I mean is, uh, for example, um, uh, in Africa, you do have situations where you have uh, multiple wives. Okay, it's polygamy. Um, and it's legal all over Africa. And you have these situations going on. Uh, you, see this in the, you see this in the Old Testament in particular. Uh, you have situations, if, if in the New Testament, they're talking about taking a donkey from here to there and, or, or working in the fields and, and, you know, and or coming in to get your daily wage and things like that. Those are very common. That, that everybody <laughs> understands what that is. <laughs> You know, um, it's, so, you know, it's, it's, I always have found it interesting in, uh, Timothy when he says, listen, you know, the elder can, can only, can only be the husband of one wife. That's right. <laughs> There's a reason for that. <laughs> and we, and we had to deal with that. And I have, I've studied the Bible with, with people, I've studied the Bible with, um, uh, witch doctors. I've studied the Bible with people who had multiple wives. Uh, it was very interesting having to, to sit down and, and work through this with the, in the scriptures. What is right in God's eyes? Right. Wow. You know? that, that is fascinating. So t- tell me a little bit about the growth of those churches. Can you give me, I, I, you know, I'm not asking for specifics, but just, I know there's been <clears throat> rapid growth. Give me some of the highlights of, of how those churches have grown and some of the, the bright spots in Africa. Oh my goodness. Uh, um, well, Nigeria is certainly one of the bright spots. Um, the church has grown tremendously over the years, uh, very, very quickly. The churches in French Africa, some of the larger ones, the Abidjan Church, the Kinshasa Church, church in uh, in Congo, uh, for example. I'm very proud of those brothers and sisters. They they've gone through civil war, they've gone through all kinds of things, and yet the church continues to grow. It's really um, a marvel to behold. And then, of course, you have um, our wonderful churches in Southern Africa, particularly the Johannesburg Church. You know, understanding all the history. Uh, of of the uh, tribal and racial strife that they've gone through, right. and yet in, you come into our churches uh, down in Southern Africa, and you see everybody together. Um, it is it's it's a miracle of God. It's really beautiful. Um, and so, to me, I, I look at the Johannesburg Church, for example, and I just feel like Jesus is is holding the church up and saying and saying, "See, this is what I can, I can do for you if you'll just follow me." Yeah. So. You know, when that church was planted, must have been the late 80s or something like that. 86. Yeah. I mean, it was right the very death throes of apartheid, and we'd hear stories about, what did they call that, uh, something necklace where they'd put... put Oh, yes. Necklacing. Necklacing. Mm -hmm. And can you you talk a little bit about that, the environment that people planted that church in? Uh, It was very difficult for them. Um, the church was was a uh, the plant sorry the, the team was a multiracial team and needed to be so um what was going on as a, as apartheid was being dismantled and was dying um it died a very a very violent death in some ways uh and as the the majority uh, african population was was fighting for their rights um you know there was a lot of tribal strife intertribal strife uh, as well. And so what would happen is that some groups would catch other groups and put tires over their necks light, and light those tires on a fire. 
That with, was called necklaces. With, with gasoline. With gasoline. I see. Oh Absolutely. my gosh. Gosh, that's Absolutely. crazy. Talk about courage uh, to go there in that environment and um, very, very inspiring. Now, um, so those churches like in, in Nigeria and those upwards of, you, you mentioned that Ivory Coast, the, the church there is over a thousand and, and same in Nigeria and, and these churches have grown dramatically. I heard that in Kenya, well, you know, that you from videos at the time, you did a lot of street preaching. Can you tell me a little about a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, that was, <laughs> that was um, uh, Mike Tolliver's idea at the time. And um, what when we started st- street preaching in Nairobi, in Abidjan, in places, no other churches were doing this. And so we just get up, um, and you know our first attempts were incredibly clumsy, um, <laughs> incredibly clumsy. Uh, but we got better at it over time. And, you know, you just go out, we start singing some songs. It would kind of gather a crowd of people. And then, you know, you would preach a five minute sermon. You know, you can't go on too long because you lose people. Right. Uh, And so a five minute sermon um, about um, like a a simple example is uh, some say Christians are weak. I see. And we'd start talking about what what real strength is and what real weakness is. Mm. Um, and then we start talking to people in the crowd and, you know, invite them to church or do you, would you like to study the Bible right now? And we'd get to know people and away we'd go. Because back in those days, again, no cell phones. There was no way to communicate, to, to find people after that. Right. So. I see. Okay. Now you, you, you mentioned that, you know, you're afraid about going to sub-Saharan Africa and also to Haiti and God ended up taking you there. What what did you find challenging? You know, you had your expectations, your fears. What what were you confronted with? What was the reality? The re okay. Uh, so I think you're asking me what was I afraid of? No, what I mean was it better than your expectations? Was it once you got there? Was it was it worse? Always. Was it like oh my gosh, always. this is it's always better. Okay, it was always better. Okay, um, you know, fear is an interesting thing. Um, you know, uh, fear is, as I, I read this the other day, that fear is an inadequate teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'll teach you things, but, but, but it's not what you need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so it was always better than what I expected. The people were warm, welcoming, kind. Um, sure, there were difficult times. There's no doubt about it. There, you know, in Abidjan, uh, there were riots in the streets. There was tear gas. There was... Um, shootings and things those kind of things happened uh because this understand when we went to africa it was at the time when uh african countries were transitioning from usually one party system systems of government to democracy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and again that's all you know those times of transition can always be a little turbulent right and so we were right there in the middle of it um and um but it was exciting it was fun uh and the people the some of my dear friends to this very day Okay. So there's a lot of people that, that talk about going into missions or doing missionary work and they would love to, I mean, they're sincerely praying about it, thinking about it and like, Oh, I always want to go to Africa. I want to go here or there, but fear is, is a real constrictor. It's a real barrier. It's, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, just overcoming that and taking that first step. What advice would you give to a person that goes, I'd like to, but boy, I am afraid. I can't tell this to anybody, but I'm afraid to, to do such and such. Right. Um, I'd like to, well, to, to overcome fear, the only, th- only thing I know that properly overcomes fear uh, is number one is faith, mm-hmm. uh, having faith in God. Uh, more faith in God than your fear of whatever, whatever you might be encountering or going through. Uh, and then love. Yeah. You've got to love people. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, you're going into cultures that are different from your own. Uh, they think differently. They do things differently. They reason differently. Um, and you're not immediately always going to find common ground uh, initially. Um, and you're just going to have to lo- learn how to love people uh, for who they are, mm-hmm. not for who you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, in most human interactions, in my experience, you try to relate to the other person. In other words, you try to find yourself in that person. Yeah. first mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes that doesn't happen wow. um, but yet you need to love them nonetheless 
Uh, and so that's that's where the challenge is. So um, to me, so faith, having a great faith in God and a great love for people. Um, and you'll notice in, in those two, there's n- there's no you in there you don't have to have faith in yourself you just have right. faith in god right. and you don't it's not about loving yourself it's love loving the other people yeah so um if you can do that um then i believe you i've always seen you have the courage you'll have the courage needed when needed uh to be able to be a missionary wow thank you now you told me a story one time about being in the ivory coast and you already spoke french when you went there that's the reason why you went there Yes. But you shared that your French was corrected by your listeners. Can you tell? Can you tell me about yes, that? It was. Yes. It was. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, I spoke French, but I spoke Parisian French. I spoke French French from France, um, just like in just like in English. Uh, there are different accents all around the world. Uh, and people speak English differently. It's, it's still English, but it's, it's spoken differently. Well, the same is true in Africa with French. And so I was getting up there and I was preaching and what some somebody, the Africans can be very direct. And so uh, the gentleman came up to me and said, you know, I love your sermons, but you know, you speak like a white man. Oh. And what he meant was I, speak, I spoke like a French person, not like an African. I see. Okay. And I said, wow, okay. So I immersed myself in um, uh, African television shows and to learn just how people speak to each other, uh, speech patterns. Um, and the, the greatest lesson I learned uh, is, is Africans tend to speak French. They all can, pretty much all educated Africans can speak proper French. They all can. However, when you leave the confines of, of a church or an office building and you go into your family, now, all that go, now you go into slang and all that goes away. Well, African languages don't have articles. French, all the Romance languages do. Um, and so they speak French without articles. Oh, my gosh. And so you have to learn how to do that. And so I learned how to weave... Uh, correct proper French, colloquial French, and back and forth into the sermons in order to draw the audience in so they could hear what, you know, what, what the scriptures were saying. Um, and it became a lot, a lot of fun to the point where now when I go to Africa and I go to another country uh, and I speak French, they say, oh, are you Ivorian? <laughs> what a compliment. Speak, it is a compliment. That's I a great French compliment. With an Ivorian accent. Oh my gosh. How impressive. How impressive. Did you, did you feel like an outsider? I mean, coming as an American, uh, did you feel, did you, was there any racism? Was there anything that you felt coming from outside uh, to Africa? Anything like that? For me, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting because there, uh, there are two things. One, um, first answer, no, in the sense, because my name is French. There you go. Uh, being Air Hervé. So for the first time, actually, here I am in a place, not the first time, but because I did it in France too, but uh, people know, know my name. I don't have to explain. Don't have to I explain. Don't have, don't have to spell it out. Don't have to pronounce it. Everybody knows the name. You know, so that was easy. Uh, so that actually was helpful to me. Um, and the fact that it's interesting. They didn't see me as an American. They saw me as a Haitian. I see. Okay. Even though I didn't grow up in Haiti. And the reason is because there was a time in the uh, 50s and 60s when Africa, Africans were looking for teachers and they went to the Caribbean to find teachers. And so Haitians and people from Martinique and people from Guadeloupe, French speakers, moved to Africa and taught generations of Africans. Wow, didn't know that. And so many of the people that I was studying the Bible with, either they themselves or their parents had been taught by Haitians at, in school growing up. And so I was immediately accepted because of that. Wow. And, and, and kind of viewed as a teacher because that's the view of Haitians as uh, teachers. Exactly. Wow. Which, 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 which God set up beautifully. That's God's now, plan. Where I did experience racism was in South Africa. Uh, South Africa is a different story. Um, I experienced racism until I spoke. When I spoke English with my American accent, they would say, oh, you're an American. And it would change everything. Right. right. And all of a sudden, everything was fine. I see. Except once. 
where I was, Mike and I, we went fishing and uh, the owner of the, of the land where we were fishing uh, saw me in the car and we went down to the, to the river and all, I was the only black person there. Everybody else was white. We we're all getting ready to fish. And the owner came down and told us to leave because I was there. Uh, and, um, and we were just, you know, we said, well, you know, but we're, we're Americans. And she just said, well, you need to go back there because we don't do things like that down here. Oh my gosh. And we got kicked out, Mike and I both, because I was black. And funny enough, I had expected, I knew it was going to happen sooner or later, but he was more upset about it than I was yeah. um, at the time. But, uh, but th- that happened. Now, let's let's talk. Let's bring it up to to now. Uh, coronavirus has, has impacted Africa especially hard. Can t- can you tell me why? What's what's going on there? I know you're really connected uh, with brothers and sisters all over Africa. Probably no one more connected. Tell me what's going on. Um, what's going on now is um, I believe in Africa they're probably uh, about two three three weeks behind us here in the US as far as exposure is concerned. The challenge is, is this virus um, spreads through close contact. Um, and so in many of the, the cities in, in Africa, people live in communal, communal settings. Uh, for example, you come into a courtyard and you may have several different families living around the courtyard in different apartments. There's an open space, a communal space, um, and in each each family unit there, you might have anywhere from ten to fifteen people. And so, in such a set, such settings, how do you practice social distancing? Mm-hmm. How how can that be done? Right. Um, Got kids running all over the place, playing together. Uh, of course, kids yep. uh, all over the place. Parents, I mean, you know, uh, public transportation. Um, you lived in Japan, right? You, you know, you know right. what it's like where people are packed in. Oh my gosh! Just, public transport, yep. right? You you can't avoid physical contact. It's impossible. You cannot. No. That's right, and that's the that's the concern for sub-Saharan Africa, and it's beginning to spread. Okay, so what's what's being done, um, and how can listeners support brothers and sisters there who are uh, struggling in that environment? Well, um, uh, to support uh, the work in Africa, actually, Hope Worldwide is doing a phenomenal job, uh, and they're taking up a contribution, uh, I believe even today, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for uh, India, Latin America, and Africa, um, because those are areas that, are, that have already begun to be hit very, very hard, and where we expect um, incredible devastation. The reason is because in Africa, uh, you have day laborers, sort of like what you see in the scriptures. So what you work for today, you, the wage you got at the end of the day is what you use to pay for food tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, uh, it, it, and so uh, when you have lockdowns and shutdowns like, like they're having all over Africa, then people can't do that. They can't work. If they can't work, they cannot eat. No one has, no, no one, uh, many people don't have refrigerators and things like that where they can, they can store food, uh, right. you know, and keep it, keep it cold for a long time. They don't, many people don't have that. And right. so it, it's a very day-to-day type of life for many people, not everyone, right. but many people. And right. so um, as of the, a couple of days ago, 40% of our members in Africa uh, were in need of some type of uh, uh, assistance as far as uh, being able to find food. Right. You, you can't just go into Costco and load up for a, a couple of weeks. No place to store it. No refrigeration, obviously. And no Costco. Yes. And no Costco. <laughs> now, they have supermarkets, but you know, but not like that. I mean, you literally went all over that continent. I know you guys had a goal to plant a church in all 50 countries of Africa. Maybe there's a few more now since that time, but you did the job which is amazing, but you came back to the States. Now, why'd you come back and, and what do you do? What are you doing now? We came back uh, in 2003. Uh, at the time, there was a little bit of an upheaval in all of our, our churches and uh, all of our missionary funding was cut overnight. Okay. Uh, and there was an emergency fund, which we all used to be able to come home, uh, to move home. But, um, and so we had to leave. And so we had to quickly, uh, I had three months, for example, to equip the, our leaders there in East Africa, in, in Nairobi, in East Africa, uh, to be able to take over, um, and so um, and so, so we came home. Uh, for my wife and I, we uh, Janet's parents. Janet is from Denver, uh, and so we ended up going to her parents' home 
just looking for ministry opportunities. Uh, and then um, John Lusk heard that I was there. We had lunch and uh, he offered me a position and I met with the elders and long story short. So they hired me. And so uh, hired us. We served the Denver Church for four years. Uh, but it became difficult to continue working effectively with Africa. And in, in, in the light of, the, of our abrupt departure, they needed a lot more help than we could provide a residing member. Right. Uh, and so Mike and Ambrugie had come here to San Antonio. Uh, and so we, we, we started talking and uh, he said, why don't you come on down to San Antonio and we can continue the, you know, working together from here. Uh, which is all we ever wanted to do, just continue serving those brothers and sisters. So um, so in June 2007, we moved down here, and uh, we have been, this is the longest I have been anywhere in my life. It must feel so, kind of strange staying in one place this long. It does, it yeah. does. Uh, but now that San Antonio is, is definitely home, and we love it here. Yeah, yeah. Now, how often do you fly back to to Africa? Is it something that's once a year, multiple times every year? On average, uh, I would say it was usually twice a year. Okay. Um, and then they had, then they, they would come here as right. well. Uh-huh. And so we had lots of contact face to face. And then of course, a lot of, a lot of, uh, FaceTiming and, and you know, uh, Skyping and things of that nature. So about twice a year. I see. Okay. Now you've had a lot of health challenges and I know that Janet has as well. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what you've had to face and what advice would you give for those who want to serve God but feel maybe limited or hobbled by, by physical challenges? The first thing I would say that I've learned is that um, I may be hobbled, but God is not. Mm. And because God is not, um, he, there's still so many things that I can do. So I have to focus on what I can do as opposed to what I cannot do. Uh, and in the scriptures, I'm, you know, I'm called to pray. I'm called to encourage. Um, and uh, as long as my mouth works, I can do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, you know, I don't need to be able to run, you know, a uh, hundred meter dash to be able to do those things. Um, and so I may be limited physically through different challenges uh, that I've had. Uh, but those are things I can still do. Um, and so it's really helped my prayer life. It's helped um uh, and you know, Janet is just an incredible example of this. Uh, you know, if she's not feeling well, uh, she has a lot of health challenges. Then she just thinks, okay, who can I encourage? Who can I encourage today? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to encourage necessarily ten people, but one person, we can all do that. Right. That's a great. That's a great attitude. That's a great attitude. Now, one thing about you that I've I've noticed from afar and getting to know you through my wife Pam. You are a true connector. I mean, you, your skills with people are what I would consider weapons grade. I mean, I, I don't know of anyone who's better with people, uh, more skilled with all sorts of different people than you are. You're comfortable with people from all backgrounds. I mean, God has certainly prepared you in so many different ways with your upbringing and uh, your experiences how have you developed that? How have you developed your people skills? This is something that I taught in a recent podcast is, you know, if you want to be a leader, you've got to be great with people. Mm-hmm. How have you learned to take what God's given you and to develop it? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I have been, uh, God has been so good to me. Um, growing up in Europe, I had incredible friends. Um, their friend, I mean, dear, dear friends, uh, uh, and I learned a lot from them even before I became a Christian. But then later on, through the scriptures, you see how Jesus would connect with people, how he would touch people. Um, and, you know, through, through the scriptures, my conviction is, um, honestly, every person is important. Um, to Jesus, every leper mattered. Every child mattered. Um, and so uh, I love that about Jesus. And I, I try to imitate it that in him is that when he was with somebody, he was present. You know, um, you know, you can see a celebrity today and someone's trying to get their attention and, and you know, and they might ignore him, ignore him or her. Uh, Jesus was present with every person that he connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I believe that that comes from the fact that you believe that person is important and they're important. Uh, they're, they're worth your time. They're worth your, your energy. Um, they're worth uh, they're, they're worth your attention. Mm-hmm. So. Um, 
Um, so that I just look, I look to the, look at the scriptures. Uh, I see Paul, how the apostle Paul grew in that. He became more and more and more personable. The closer he, the, the more he became like Jesus, the more personable he became, even though that might not have been who he was naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I, that's, I, just go, I look at the scriptures and I see, I see those things. Um, and I, I've tried to, to imitate those things. That's fantastic. I, I like how you always go back to the scriptures uh, and, you know, whether it's faith or love or Jesus's love and care for people, it's, it's, it's great. Now, I know this sounds a little funny, but, but Hervé, what, I mean, what sets you apart? What, what's made the difference for you in living a no regrets life? I mean, you, you've lived one of the most exciting and impacting lives. I, one of the, one of the most I've, I've heard of, I mean, it's just, God's allowed you to experience some pretty amazing things. But what do you think sets you apart? What's, what's made the difference? The word that comes to mind is gratitude. I'm very grateful for what God has given me. I'm grateful for every person um, that I've gotten the privilege to know. I'm grateful to know you. I'm incredibly grateful to, to, to Pam. Uh, and for the fact that she she persevered through my bullheadedness um, <laughs> and uh, showed me a greater treasure than basketball, um, far greater. Um, just I'm just very grateful. Um, I'm grateful for the wonderful men that have trained me over the years. Grateful for my beautiful wife. Grateful for my four awesome children. Um, I'm just very grateful. Yeah. Um, and I think if, if, if we can stay grateful, um, I think God will continue to use us for many, many years. Yeah. I think when we lose our gratitude, uh, I think we lose our ability uh, to connect with others. We, I, mean, I, I honestly believe we lose our ability to connect with God. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I'm just, personally, I just feel very grateful. Yeah. So I don't know if that sets me apart or not. I just know. That that's, that's great. Awesome. That's super, super important. Now, you know, as we come to a close in this discussion, what advice would you give to someone like yourself, man or woman, who wants to live a life of adventure, wants to be totally sold out for God, and and just thinks, man, I want to, you know, I don't know if I can do all that, but I'd like to do something like that. What what advice would you give to someone listening? Oh man, just you know, throw me a bone here, give me a practical. Sure. What can I do? Um, I would say know this more than anything else and you have to i think you have to really be convinced of this and that is the, this the truth that god loves you fiercely wow. he loves you fiercely and because he does there's nothing that is impossible to you or to me through him because not because of our gifts and talents whichever ones he gives us it doesn't matter how many he gives us just use whatever you have for you know for him um but no, knowing that God loves you fiercely. And if that is your motivation for what you do, I think the sky's the limit. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting as I, I, as I interview you and you say that so many of the people that I've talked to, they always go back to that, that your, your view of God and his understanding and internalizing his feelings towards you, his view of you is absolutely essential, you know, really understanding and, and, taking to heart what Paul talked about, about God's love for us and, and his mm-hmm. mindset and, um, you know, making that not something that you just uh, make, make something that you say on Sundays, but something you really feel. God is, is, like you said, fiercely in love with me and fiercely loves me. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. Any final words, Hervé, uh, before we finish? Yes. Um... First of all, thank you. This has been wonderful. This has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed uh, this time with you, Rob. You're, you're a great man, and, and I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to share these thoughts. Uh, my final thing I, I, I want to share with, with, with um, our, our, your listeners is simply this. Um, the importance of becoming all things to all men. Mm. Um, through Jesus, we all can become all things to all men. The idea of helping others know God is not for them to become like you. It's for you to become like them and show them how they can be disciples by you becoming like them and how they can follow Jesus. So um, I think that is just so important. That's, That's pure gold. And that goes back to your skill with people, really becoming like Paul, like adaptable and, and flexible in your approach. And, 
uh, becoming like people so you can help them. So you've certainly spent a lifetime doing that. Well, thank you so much, Herve, for joining the show today. It's, it's, I mean, I could just keep going. It just, it kind of sends chills down my spine to talk to you today. Thank you. Well, thank and, you Thanks for having me. Amen. And, and I want to say thank you today for listening to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. If you enjoyed this program today, I'd like to ask you to subscribe, to rate, to review. More than anything, just share it with your friends. Get the word out. And have a great day and make this life count.